Welcome, I'm Father Mitch Paqua, and welcome to EWTN Live. We bring you guests from around the world. Our guest tonight was born far away in another part of the world, but he lives here now. And he is here to take us on a literary tour, examining what he deems to be 12 of the most important books ever written, from St. Augustine to Oscar Wilde from Shakespeare to Charles Dickens, with G.K. Chesterton and Mary Shelley thrown into the mix. So our guest combines his love of literature with his love of our Lord, and to help us understand and enjoy some of civilization's greatest books. Please welcome the editor of the St. Austin Review, and he's the author of a book called 12 Great Books, Going Deeper into Classic Literature, Mr. Joseph Pierce. Joseph, good to have you back. It's good to be back. And uh, thank you for writing this book. Um, one of the crises that I think we have in education is that teachers are oftentimes looking for a relevance to the present moment instead of preparing students by examining classic literature in English that will help them recognize the relevance of the present moment when they come upon it. It's as if they're spoon-feeding present-day relevance to them with the novels they choose. And oftentimes they're doing it on the basis of present day hot topic issues related to race and sex. Am I off on that? No, you're very much correct on that, uh, uh, more's the pity. The, the thing is that, that if, if, if something's up to date, it's gonna be out of date. Um, the thing about the great books is that they are timely because they're timeless. In other words, that there are great truths that emerge in the great books, whether you go back as early as Homer, almost 3,000 years ago, mm -hmm. to books of the 20th century, um, that, that, that the truths that emerged there, so our, who we are as human beings, mm -hmm. our relationship with our neighbor, our relationship with our God, the, uh, the meaning of suffering, the importance of suffering, the acceptance of suffering, uh, the redemptive qualities of suffering, all of these things are not uh, anything that ever becomes passe, they're perennially relevant. That's why you know, the, great, the great books are about the permanent things, not the peripheral or the, or the transitory or the transient things. So when things are up to date, they're gonna be out of date. Things that are timeless are always timely. I know a quote that's attributed to Chesterton uh, where he says, whoever weds himself to the spirit of the times soon finds himself a widow. Couldn't Amen. Be, couldn't be better said. Amen. And, and in every generation, Father, there's the choice between the uh, Heiliger Geist or the Zeitgeist. You know, yeah, wait, what, what are you, where are these geister coming from? <laughs> <laughs> well, the Heiliger Geist or the Zeitgeist, the, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of the Age. Yeah, so Heiliger Geist means Holy Spirit. Yeah, 
and the zeitgeist means time spirit or spirit of the age. Mm -hmm. So, um, so in every generation, you know, who who do we follow and who do we think actually uh, signifies the truth? Is it the spirit of the age, mm -hmm. or is it the Holy Spirit? Because mm -hmm. the spirit of the age, of course, changes from age to age. That's the whole point of it. It's subject to change. Yeah. Uh, but but truth is not subject to change. So the, the, the Holy Ghost is as true today as it as as he's always been. So the great the great books present these, these changeless permanent realities. And again, with, with the great books, we talk about a canon. So we canonize saints, right? But we also canonize books. Mm -hmm. You know, that a book, if it stands the test of time, you know, so I would say at least 50 years before you pass judgment on it. You don't normally, well, you never canonize saints while they're alive. And you should never really canonize books when the, their authors are still alive. In other words, the, 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 like a good wine, a good book needs to stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. And if 50 or 60 years after it was published, it's still being read and it's still relevant because it's timeless, then it has a claim to be added to this list of canonized books, to the canon of Western civilization. And one of the important things about your list is that these do span uh, quite a few centuries, all the way from the 4th century A.D. to the 20th century A.D. So that's, that's a good 1,600-year span that you include there. And, you know, of course, there are, like you mentioned, Homer, there are older books, but these are where you chose. And a couple things. I think uh, we have to ask, and this would be my kind of question for you, what made you choose these 12? And there are a few other books that you could include in the canon of great books, right? <laughs> uh, Many, many more. Yeah. I mean, the, the, a very key point here is there's no definite article. It's not the 12 great books. Yeah. It's 12 great books. So yeah. I could have selected a different 12, or a different 12 again. You know, there are, there are several hundred great books that have, uh, uh, have a place in the canon that could have been included. But, you know, I, I chose 12, 12 great books that I particularly like, that I particularly know, that I felt I had something particularly worthwhile saying. And so that, 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 that if you like, they were the criteria for the selection. But there, there are sure. many sins of omission, numerous yeah. sins of omission. But see, the, part of the point of my question is, you are allowed to enjoy some of the classics of literature more than others. You can have favorites, but you should know what they are. And then you can choose favorites from those. Let's, let's take a look. I mean, you have, the, the oldest book you have is St. Augustine's Confessions. Why did you choose a book from the fourth century? Well, again, largely because it is from the 4th century, but it is as relevant to the 21st century. So Augustus' Confessions, first of all, the book itself is like the, it's really like the progenitor of the autobiography. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's mm -hmm. the, the, the first and, and probably the greatest. So in that sense, it has a, a claim to uh, our um, treating it with the gravitas it clearly Deserves, but also about it. I'm mean, going to give you one example in, in my own life. Uh, you know, I remember when I was a child, uh, we lived in the countryside in England, and we were surrounded, the small market town I lived in, surrounded by fruit orchards. So apples, pears, plums, strawberries. And we would go out 
and we used to call it scrumping, which is basically stealing. We would go in and we would pick the apples from the trees. They weren't our apples, they weren't our plums. And we did it not because we were hungry, we did it because we knew it was wrong. Mm -hmm. And then when we read uh, the Confessions of Augustine, he tells exactly the same story. That he breaks into a neighbor's property and steals pears from the tree, not because they were hungry, but because they knew it was wrong. So there's something about St. Augustine's Confessions, which if you like, uh, our own confessions sort of tap into. It's really like these great, these great works are, are archetypes of which, in some sense, we are types. We see a great deal of ourselves in them, and, we, and we, it, it, they can even be seen like cathedrals that we can grow into the presence of. So we read St. Augustine's confessions. We're in the presence not just a great man, a man that we know is greater than we are, but yet his path in some senses, is similar to ours. So he's a great man who's also an everyman. And one of the things I've, I've always loved about the Confessions, by the way, uh, just so you know, uh, the same advice about reading that book was given to me by Sister Ida back in eighth grade. She, t she said in her usual stern way, you young men should not die without reading Augustine's Confessions. Well, in Chicago, where I grew up, you always have to worry about when you're going to die. So I read it in eighth grade. Didn't quite understand it very well. But later on in college, when I reread it, it was, you know, a wonderful book. And besides in inventing the autobiography, Augustine makes it a prayer. Yes. This is one of the other things about it. He's speaking to God so free. It's not like talking about myself, about, yeah, I know my reflection. No, he's speaking to our Lord. And that's a wonderful way of examining his life from that divine perspective. I think that gives him. Yes, and it's, as you say, it's, it's almost sacramental because it is confessional. It's a confession to God of his journey towards God. And more to the point, for a large part of the story, is resistance of the journey towards God. Uh, mm -hmm. And yet God's persistence, persistence overcomes his resistance. And it's a beautiful story. But as you say, it's not just, look at me, this is my life story. It's very much a confession to God of his gratitude to God for bringing him home in spite of his own hard-heartedness and hard-headedness. Now, on one hand, uh, I'm going to jump around a little bit because some of uh, you know, the novels uh, you've chosen uh, are somewhat of a surprise in one sense, but one of those would be Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Why did you choose Frankenstein? It's a, I mean, it's obviously a classic book. It's been made into a number of movies and even been made fun of in, in the movies with young Frankenstein. Um, why did you choose Frankenstein? Well, certainly you, you've highlighted in the first two books you've decided to to discuss the quixotic nature of the selection. I mean, you can't really think of many writers more different than yeah. the great... Uh, St. Augustine, and then this teenage author, Mary Shelley, who's a teenager when she writes this book, she's eloped with the poet Percy Shelley. And mm -hmm. while she's actually writing this book, 
Percy Shelley's wife, who was pregnant when Shelley deserts her to elope with this teenage girl, Mary Shelley, commits suicide. Um, so, while, so the backdrop to the novel is two, two suicides of intimate friends, one of whom must have, paid, must have played heavily on Mary Shelley's conscience. The loss of her own first child um, during, during this. So you have this sort of very turbulent backdrop, this maelstrom emotionally going on in the mind of a teenage girl. So this, you, you've got this monster being created because there's monsters going on in her life. And what I find very interesting about it, her father was an atheist, Percy Shelley famously was an atheist, so her lover and her father are atheists, and yet the novel seems to be groping and grappling out of that atheistic mess mm -hmm. towards a more uh, conventional, a more uh, Christian understanding of morality and a desire for the peace that she doesn't have and paying the price for the sort of liberation uh, from conventional morality and the price she pays is a very heavy one and you can see this almost desire to to escape from this liberated existence into something which is more authentic in terms of love. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's um, you know, a fascinating book coping with the questions of evil that just science and its power cannot resolve, but rather often creates. This yes, is absolutely, and the book sort of it, the book blends or melds scientism, so the worship or idolatry of science, scientolatry, should we say, scientism, with 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 the demonic. So you know, the Victor Frankenstein um, has to rob graves. He has to basically live this nocturnal existence where he turns his back on goodness, truth, and beauty with this obsessive fixation on gaining immortality. So you know, the the the, the perennial uh, temptation of science from from alchemy onwards is to attain the elixir of life to defeat death. By, by immortality. So this is something which Mary Shelley uh, uh, presents in the novel is not just scientific, but as demonic. And so that's one of the, things, one of the secrets of, this, of the, the, uh, the enduring popularity and fascination with the novel is we can see there's a certain type of worship of technology and of scientism, which is very indistinguishable from that which we might call demonic. So in, in, in present times, things like transhumanism. So she could, you know, there's something prophetic. She might be a teenage girl. There's something very prophetic in what she's seeing happening with science. And at that time, there was galvanism, you know, that basically they were doing experiments where they had a corpse and they were selling tickets. You could actually come on, pay to, pay, to pay to watch this. They put a corpse on an electric chair and they run electric current through it and then the corpse will start twitching and its facial muscles start twitching. And so this is the idea is if somehow or other there's a connection between ele electricity and life and we can regenerate mm -hmm. life somehow by mm -hmm. galvanizing. Uh, and so, you know, all of these ideas were sort of current at the time and, and she could see that th this is getting very macabre and morbid. And part of the relevance of that is uh, still here because we have scientists just a few weeks ago talking about how they could uh, raise a, a baby from embryo, from fertilizing a, a human egg in a machine 
and have it go through full gestation to be, get born, but it would be all living off of a machine. And they're saying that they can do that. I, the, the idea of the Frankenstein monster is not so far away. And so this is a good book for us to reflect on, no? Exactly. I mean, years ago, when people worried about genetic modification of food and things like that, in England, they, the, the, the media dubbed these Frankenstein foods of Franken foods. In other <laughs> words, you know, there's this sense that we are tampering with the building blocks of nature in a way which is somehow violating creation with our, you know, as, as, as Gerard Manny Hopkins would say, it wears man's smudge. That somehow or other we have managed to not just pollute nature, but we're now doing things with it, which is dabbling with diabolism. Mm -hmm. So this, this is still a very relevant book. The other thing that you do is you have three plays by Shakespeare. Why did you choose the plays that you chose? You have Othello, Romeo and Juliet, and Macbeth. Well, again, as with Dickens, you know, it's much more difficult to know which to leave off than to which to include. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it, I, I obviously couldn't become too obsessive with Shakespeare and make it a book on Shakespeare. I've written three books on Shakespeare already. But Shakespeare's a great love of mine. And um, uh, those, those, those three plays, uh, I think... I, I, and Julius Caesar, I knew I forgot one. I, th I, th Caesar. I thought there were four as well, but I, yeah. I, I've learned never yeah. to question Father Mitch Packard. No, 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 it's <laughs> good to question him. Uh, but Julius Caesar as well. Yeah, yeah so again, the, the, these, these plays have various facets of, of, of uh, Shakespeare's genius to try to, try to encapsulate, perhaps in a, in, a, in, a, in a proverbial nutshell. Romeo and Juliet teaches us uh, about the dangers of allowing... Uh, our hearts to rule our heads and particularly to allow erotic passion to rule uh, our reason. Uh, and it also, you know, Juliet's only 13 years old. Shakespeare makes her deliberately very young. His own daughter is 13 when he's writing the play. So he's the father of a 13-year-old girl when he writes that play. So it's a cautionary tale about the danger of, of um, uh, uh, allowing our erotic passions to, to run away with us with tragic and ultimately deadly consequences. Mm -hmm. That's a, a very important uh, message again today as people say, I have to be true to myself, I have to follow my passions. Not really. Well, it, 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 you I, need I, to have yeah. reason working here to guide your passions. Yeah, and, and, and obviously there are self-destructive consequences to pursuing exactly. that heedlessness, right? That, that headlessness. Um, and uh, th another reason why I write on Romeo and Juliet is, is that the play is almost always misread, misconstrued, and badly taught. In other words, in, in most public high schools, insofar as they still teach Shakespeare at all, you know, Romeo and Juliet and Julius Caesar are the two books that are taught most often at high school level. So that's one of the reasons those two are in there. But Romeo and Juliet is normally taught uh, that, you know, the love between Romeo and Juliet is beautiful, and it's those darn adults know, with their feuding and, 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 and their hatred, which is the problem. If, the, if Romeo and Juliet were left alone, 
they would they would be happy. In actual fact, the reason they they are they are self-destructive is because they are left alone. There's a lack of parenting. That mm -hmm. basically the, the adults are too concerned with their worldly affairs to paying any attention to the needs of their children. And that's part of the tragedy here. But certainly what Shakespeare's showing in that is that there uh, that erotic passion. Uh, uncontrolled and un, un, unharnessed to reason is deadly, suicidal. And the, but there's also the side, not only the parents caught up in their own feuds and neglecting their children, their children are avoiding the parents and it, the way that children today are so locked into their cell phone conversations and texting with friends and dealing in that world, getting themselves into difficulties, and just the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, just published today that a very large proportion of teenage girls are talking about suicide. I mean, again, it's not irrelevant to this tragedy of isolation of adults from children. Yeah, and 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 we do actually see made manifest in Romeo and Juliet. Uh, the, the embryonic culture of death. I mean, that's really what Shakespeare's showing us, is that narcissism is ultimately self-destructive. And Friar Lawrence, by the way, it's just about, he's a flawed character in the play, this Franciscan mm -hmm. friar, but he's the only one who speaks any wisdom at any times. And, and he says in the play, to, to Romeo and Juliet, these violent delights breed violent ends. Mm -hmm. That basically, if you will not uh, have the cardinal virtues of temperance and prudence, you're going to have violence and self-destruction. Yeah. You mentioned Julius Caesar as one of the Shakespearean plays that still may be taught in, in schools. Not all schools, but in many of them they, it still is. Why did you choose that for your great books? Well, again, this is a, 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 a very interesting book uh, play from the perspective of political philosophy. So that Shakespeare basically shows that the various different types of political ambition, the main characters are all self-serving and the consequences of their various uh, perspectives, all of which are ultimately self-serving, is, is mutually destructive, bringing about the, the destruction of the common good, the destruction of, of, of human society. So he, in self-destruction. And, yeah, yeah, in self-destruction, exactly. And, and how friends betray friends, how rhetoric, the, 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 the gift of rhetoric, the gift of using words well can be abused, you know, become sophistry and basically be used to manipulate the mob uh, against certain parties, against certain factions, uh, how friends et tu brute, right? You know, how friends can be manipulated to join in conspiracies against, against those who trust them. I mean, really, it, it, what it is, is it's, it's, uh, it's putting the spotlight on the, um, uh, the destructiveness of secular politics mm -hmm. uh, and how politicians who are motivated by personal ambition should not be trusted and are, and are basically destructive of the common good. And that's, that's the overarching message of, of Romeo and Juliet is that, and it reflects the time in which it was written, uh, 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 the end of the Elizabethan period, uh, and, but also, of course, it's as relevant to the world in which we find ourselves today. And the same points would be true of Macbeth and Othello, that these are people who are, there are self-serving individuals. You know, Othello, 
Desdemona's a good person, but you know the other folks are so self-serving, they become destructive. Yeah, we see. I mean, in Othello, it's the same thing. How how Shakespeare shows us that passion, divorced from reason, is destructive. In that case, it's the passion of jealousy. So you've got Diego, this Machiavel, this this basically he says, "I am not what I am." So he introduces himself in diabolical terms as the inversion of of God's uh, "I am." Uh, that I am from Genesis. Mm -hmm. So I am not that I am is the way that Diego is, is his signature. So he's a Diabolus. He's a Machiavel. Uh, and everything he says, the only time you actually, anything that Diego says uh, that's, that's actually telling you what he really thinks is a soliloquy. In other words, when he's by himself. Whenever he's, anybody's listening to him, he's deliberately poisoning them with lies and deception. And Othello is at the passion of jealousy. Once it's inflamed, because of the jealousy of his heart, he will believe any lie that's told about his wife, uh, ultimately to the extent that he kills her. So, you know, what Shakespeare's showing is the same thing here. Macbeth, political ambition, right? This man, Macbeth is the anti-Hamlet. So Hamlet starts off in despondency, and then ultimately through circumvention, comes to an acceptance of divine providence. He, he quotes from the gospel, and he lays down his life for his friends. And the, the final words said above him are the words from the prayers of the, uh, after the traditional mass, requiem mass, may flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. So there's this ascent by Hamlet. Macbeth's the entire opposite. He starts as a hero who everyone's lauding, has been given worldly honors because he's a hero in battle. And then because of this diabolical temptation through the three witches uh, that tell him half-truths. That sows the seeds of his political ambition and then the rest of it is a downward spiral, obviously inflamed by his own wife's desire for political power for, 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 for the kingdom. And I think it's worth pointing out, you mentioned that Iago is this Machiavellian character. Machiavelli was an Italian obviously from his name, a uh, diplomat who wrote about this is the way politics really works. And you can have ideals, but this is what really happens. And that his book, The Prince, had been written just a hundred years or so before Shakespeare. His ideas were spreading around and were helping to undo Europe as it was in a lot of self-destructive wars that would only get worse in the 17th century, not long after uh, Shakespeare finished writing. And again, the relevance for today, when we take a look at how people are putting into office those who don't want to keep the law because they have their own agenda. They don't want to protect vulnerable citizens because they have other power politics they're doing. It's relevant to today and we need to understand the mentality. Yeah, that's exactly it. As we said at the beginning, you know, that, that the great books are timely because they're timeless. So the Machiavel, the Machiavellian uh, politician who's self-serving and will manipulate others in, for his own self-empowerment is obviously a big problem in our own sort of globalist, 
federal government scenarios we find ourselves in today in the 21st century. They were as relevant in the 16th and 17th century when Shakespeare was writing. They've been relevant throughout the whole of history. That is the, 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 the difference between, going back to St. Augustine, between the city of God and the city of man. And the Machiavel is, is, is a servant of the city of man. And it's normally the Machiavel who has political power. Um, and, and so in that sense, of course, Machiavelli was right that the city of man normally does have the power and normally does, have, does use the power in a self-serving, manipulative and ultimately destructive way in terms of the common good. But the genius of these plays by Shakespeare, especially the political ones, Macbeth, Othello, and Julius Caesar, is that it also points out the self-destructive aspect of that. When I think of evil, I frequently think of the man who was possessed by a legion of demons. And when the demons wanted to go into the pigs rather than hell, they killed the pigs. It's this Evil has a self-destructive quality, and it's in the gospel, but it's also in these brilliant plays. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly what, what Shakespeare shows us, is that culture of death is not only deadly, but suicidal. And we need to realize that, you know, that we just have to be true to the goodness, truth, and beauty of, of the gospel. Uh, and while we keep our eye on the finishing line, it's about getting to heaven, and let evil destroy itself. The tragedy, of course, is the, the evil destroys lots of innocence, uh, innocent people. Like Desdemona. Yeah, exactly. So there, there, there's always the innocent victims. You know, so I sometimes say, you give the devil enough rope, he hangs himself, but he'll hang you first. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, we're sadly uh, at time for a break, as it's going by quickly, but uh, I would urge people to do two things with Shakespeare. There are lots of DVDs of plays. I would look at the classical performances before you do the avant-garde. Would that be good advice to, in your mind? Absolutely. Shakespeare abuse is rampant. Many people abuse Shakespeare by pursuing their own political or other philosophical agendas. So it's better to go with the older classical presentations rather than many of the modern productions but also to read the play, watch it. That's how it's meant to be experienced, it's a play. Yes. But also savor it, you know, uh, the, the aftertastes, if you would, that you might find in a great wine or something, that you, you savor those tastes as you read it, uh, both the watching and the reading are well worth our time. Absolutely, we need to do both because Shakespeare's English is such that we need to engage with it and we just watch it, we miss so much. Yeah. And you engage the words of Shakespeare, you, you realize what a genius he was, how profoundly Catholic he was. Mm -hmm. and, and how beautiful the English language can be. Again, at a time when many teachers in our schools, college, high school, and grammar school, are not teaching the beauty of our language, not the grammar, not the vocabulary, not its beauty. And English, just so any of you think, I, I like a lot of languages, but English has more vocabulary than any language in the history of the world. That doesn't mean it's always the best language but it does have more vocabulary and therefore is very rich.
Um, before we go to break, just want to let people know that if you want more information about Joseph Smith, up here, Joseph Smith, <laughs> Joseph Pierce and his work, go to jpierce.com. Dot co. Dot co? Dot co. It's dot com, huh? Wow. Uh, where did you get co from? Uh, because I imagine because someone already, already taken com. I don't really know. Oh, okay. So <laughs> jpierce.co. Um, hmm, I thought it was just a typo. <laughs> All right. So that, that way you'll uh, learn more about his work. We'll take a little break and come back in a couple of minutes. So please stay with us. Welcome back. Uh, we're discussing a new book called 12 Great Books. Not the 12 greatest, but just 12 great books written by our guest, uh, uh, Joseph Pierce, and among many of his other books. And we would like to start taking a look at some of your questions. So let's start off with Mike in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Mike, what can we do for you? Yes, good evening, Father Mitch and Mr. Joseph Pierce. Uh, thank you for taking my question. Um, sure. Listen to you speak about the relevancy of uh, authors and books with their timeless messages. I know uh, Mr. Pierce has done considerable work on J.R. Tolkien. And do you think J.R. Tolkien's books have serious relevancy today as the free world is being threatened by totalitarian societies like China? Russia, Iran, and North Korea, much like what Tolkien witnessed in World War I and with the rise of the Nazis and fascism in World War II? Very good question. What do you think there, Joseph? Yes, well, I, I absolutely think that, that The Lord of the Rings uh, has a perennial relevance. And the thing about The Lord of the Rings, because it's set in Middle Earth, not in our world, so to speak, its timelessness is accentuated. So Tolkien said, and I'm quoting him word for word here, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. So insofar as we know that the, that the Catholic Church is fundamentally and religiously relevant, then insofar as the Lord of the Rings is, and it is, a fundamentally uh, religious and Catholic work, it will remain perennially relevant. One thing I would say in relation to the question, although, of course, there are all sorts of political insights and insights of, of political philosophy you can get from the Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings works at its deepest level on a level of theology. So fundamentally religious and Catholic means theology. So, for instance, very briefly, the ring is destroyed on March the 25th. The March the 25th is the Feast of the Annunciation. Also, historically, according to tradition in the early church, the date of the crucifixion. Right. So March the 25th is probably the most important date in the Christian Canada, the date of the incarnation, the date of the crucifixion, which taken together with the resurrection is our redemption. So if the ring is destroyed 
on that date, it's destroyed on the same date that sin, the power of sin is destroyed. So in some sense, the ring is synonymous with sin itself. Mm -hmm. And when you understand that, then the power of the ring is the power of sin. Putting the ring on is living in sin. But if instead of wearing the ring, you're bearing the ring, you're carrying the weight of sin without succumbing to it, at that point, the bearing of the ring is like bearing of the cross. It's like being a cross bearer. So there's a sense in which we are all called to be ring bearers, but not ring wearers. It's on this deeply theological level that the Lord of the Rings retains its, its relevance. It does have political applicability, but that's not where its relevance lies in, on the deepest level. And, you know, when you mention the issues that we have with totalitarian governments, on another level, we also see that there are lots of people that would be Saruman who from within our culture would side with the forces of evil in order to have more power through evil and would work to destroy our culture. Again, that's also a very relevant part of the Lord of the Rings and it's a relevant part of our culture. We have to pay attention to those inside the culture yeah, if you want that an, would destroy it. If you want an example of the Lord of the Rings, not just relevance, but prophetic characteristics, then Saruman, uh, he basically breaks from a belief in objective good and evil. He, he basically says, I'm no longer Saruman the white, I'm Saruman of many colors. He selects the rainbow. He breaks the white into a rainbow uh, and follows a Nietzschean philosophy of self-empowerment and radical relativism. So basically, when, when we believe now that we're beyond good and evil, in reality, we're serving the devil, which is why Saruman, when he declares himself independent of the good, ends up actually serving the dark power of Mordor. Yep, and this is very much what's going on in the moral relativism of our culture and people who claim just to be dealing with the relativistic uh, truth are serving evil. They are creating the self-destruction to the culture. And we then have to, a moral and religious response. Will we carry the ring to its destruction so that society can exist and the truth can exist. Yeah, and, and you know, the ring bearer is outnumbered. The, the, all the political power is with Sauron and Saruman. The fellowship of the ring is relatively powerless, but the, the above all shadows rides the sun, as Samwise Gamgee says. You know, that you're, in, in serving the truth, you're serving God. In serving God, you're ultimately on the winning side. We have to be willing to be a minority of ring bearers, even in a culture where most people are ring wearers. Yeah. You know, before we get any other questions, um, I'd like to point out that you have two different writers from the 19th century that are something of a contrast. One is Charles Dickens, and you chose the Christmas Carol. And then the other is the, uh, the novel, uh, The Picture of Dorian Gray, um, both dealing with the 
you know, shady side of the 19th century, oftentimes the Victorian era, the proper era, and yet both of them are in the shadow of that Victorian golden age. Why did you choose those two? Well, they, they're, they're, they're both similar, but also very different. They're similar in yeah. the sense that both of them, in some sense, are, well, they, they both work on the level of the supernatural. Um, uh, the, the, a Christmas Carol is really a retelling, in some sense, of the parable of the prodigal son. So Ebenezer Scrooge wanders away from, from, from his childhood innocence, uh, becomes avaricious, becomes miserly, turns his back on Christmas, turns his back on God, turns his back on neighbors ruins his life in consequence, even though he's got loads of money, but then has this conversion story brought about, of course, by supernatural intervention, by the ghost of Jacob Marley, his former partner, uh, who's presumably a, purga you know, a spirit in purgatory, but then by three, what we can really call guardian angels, because they are, they are messengers that aren't uh, people. There's supernatural messengers of the spirits of Christmas, past, present, and yet to come. Um, so that's a, like, the, like the story of Prodigal Son. The picture of Dorian Gray is actually similar, except the prodigal son chooses not to return. That basically he has this great gift, ironically. He sells his soul to the devil. He prays for eternal youth and that the portrait of him will get older uh, and he will stay young. But what the portrait does, it doesn't just get older, it reflects the ugliness of every sin he commits. So it gets not just older, but uglier and more hideous. And this is a mirror of his conscience, a mirror of his soul. Mm -hmm. And instead of heeding it, he chooses to, to try to destroy the picture. So, and, and in that, of course, he destroys himself. So we have the story of the prodigal son and the story of the prodigal son who refuses to return with self-destructive consequences. Yes. Now, from the 20th century, um, you chose Brideshead Revisited, famously made into a presentation on the BBC, uh, in a long series that was on the BBC. Why did you choose, among the books of the 20th century, Brideshead Revisited? Well, I think it's probably the greatest novel of the 20th century, so I hold it very, in very high esteem. But, but even more said in the preface to the second edition of the novel, he said its theme is the workings of uh, divine grace in the lives of closely associated individuals. So it means that the novel is also works on the supernatural level. The protagonist is actually God. So the, if to, read this, to read the novel as, as war intends you to, you've got to see the workings of divine providence, the hand of grace at work. And there are two metaphors he uses in the novel for this. One is the twitch upon the thread. So the, the fisherman's thread is grace, and we can wander off to the ends of the world, but the twitch upon the thread is when through the experience of suffering, when we can no longer go the way we want to go, we're tugged back, that brings us back towards God. And that metaphor was taken from a Father Brown story by Chesterton. And then uh, the other one is, is, is an avalanche. You know, that the, the sinners are making their nice cozy Arctic huts. It's nice and warm, it's all cold outside, but they've got their own little microcosm, which is basically self-centered. And then through the sun, a metaphor for grace on the high slopes, an avalanche begins and destroys everything. The first, part of, the first part of the novel ends on Good Friday. 
The second part of the novel ends on Easter Sunday. It's a profoundly Catholic work. Bride's head, who's the bride's head? The bridegroom. So bride's head itself in some sense is a metaphor for Christ and the church. It's a profoundly mystical work that on one level is realistic, but on a deeper level is very much full of the providence of God. Yeah, and you know, it was beautifully shot. Oh. You know, it just wonderfully, wonderfully uh, presented. But again, you want to get to the novel itself. Yeah. yeah. You also mention that this metaphor was drawn from G.K. Chesterton, and you include from Chesterton, the man who was Thursday. Why'd you choose that? Well, again, one of the greatest novels uh, ever written, also one of the most confusing. Yeah. yeah, I don't think anybody's read that novel, should we say, recreationally, outside of the context of a classroom, for instance, uh, that has not been completely baffled and puzzled at the end of it. I certainly was in the first few times I read it. Um, it's a profound metaphysical uh, spiritual detective story. And ultimately, it's about faith and reason. It's about these six philosopher detectives trying to find out who this mysterious figure called Sunday is. Um, I don't know how much I want to spoil the plot, really. I've, I suppose I've done it with most of the other books, but uh, <laughs> spoiler alert all around here. Um, but, you know, that basically what it shows is that, that philosophy, reason, can only take us so far. It can lead us in the direction of God, but no further. If we are going to get closer to God, God then has to reveal himself to us. So the, the latter part of the novel is a revelation. Uh, and, and, and it really takes us deeper into the mystery of who is God. But, it, but it, it takes us further than the philosophers can go because it takes God himself to reveal himself to us. I think, you know, you, you point out that this is, uh, you know, something of a detective novel. And one of the staples of the G.K. Chesterton set of novels is his Father Brown stories, which are, or, or which this priest is a, basically a detective. He keeps coming into various detective cases, but it's not like a lot of contemporary detective novels. The detective novel was not part of the ancient world. <laughs> they didn't write those. Um, this is a modern invention. And he uses it for more than just entertainment of whodunit. It's not like a, the Hardy Boy books that I read as a child. Tell us a little bit more about his detective approach. Yeah, so basically, uh, and we see it, at the, the Man Who's Thursday is a deeper philosophical approach, but it's also a detective story, like Father Brown. In some sense, Father Brown was, was, was created by Chesterton as a riposte to the sort of detectives, very popular detectives like Sherlock Holmes. Because Sherlock Holmes solves the mystery through the application of science. Mm -hmm. So it, all crime can be solved through forensics, I suppose we, what, what we would now say. Whereas Father Brown takes a different approach that basically crime is about the criminal and it's ultimately about good and evil and you, 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 you're more likely to catch the criminal if you know something about his motives. 
So in other words, there's a psychological approach to solving crime, as well as a merely a, an empirical forensic approach. So in some sense, he's, he's talking about the mystery of evil and how a priest who's privy through confession to, to hearing all sorts of, of wickedness and evil, in some sense would have a far better idea of the mind of a criminal, because the, uh, the mind of a criminal is the mind of a sinner, than merely a forensic scientist wandering around looking for the physical evidence. And, you know, one of the ironies to me is that, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes is portrayed as using all this science and being, you know, rational and scientific. Yet, the author ended up becoming very involved in the spiritism movement. He got caught up in the, you know, following all kinds of spiritists, and he believed them. You know, he fairly credulous. Instead of the incredulity of Father Brown, he was a very credulous man. And it brings out that the difference between the two, again, brings out a statement from Chesterton. When a man loses his faith in God, he doesn't believe in nothing. He'll believe in anything. And that was very much the case. Well, that was exactly what that, that quote, you beat me to it, when you were talking about um, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the, the author of uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories, you know, ending up be, being this sort of person, believe in spiritualism. That quote from Chester sprung to my mind, great minds think alike, Father Mitch. Yeah. And that's why we both read Chesterton. <laughs> <laughs> Learn from our betters. Um, you also include, uh, be besides uh, you know, the Frankenstein, the other uh, book that you have that's by a woman here is Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. Why'd you choose that? Well, again, a profoundly Christian novel, but very dark. In fact, there are similarities with Frankenstein. Heathcliff, the very dark, violent, self-obsessive character at the dark heart of Wuthering Heights is a monster, uh, just as Frankenstein's monster is a monster. In fact, G.K. Chesterton said that Heathcliff fails as dramatically as a man as he, as he succeeds as a demon. So we have, uh, again, it's a bit like Romeo and Juliet, the self-obsessive love, which is really not love at all, uh, between Heathcliff and Cathy. Mm -hmm. uh, it has ramifications throughout. And in the midst of it, there's a character, the nurse, the servant, Ellen Dean, Nellie Dean, who's profoundly Catholic, reminds us perhaps, oh, sorry, profoundly Christian. Emily Bronte was the daughter of an Anglican parson, so she's an Anglican Christian, uh, but very orthodox in her faith. So um, Nellie Dean uh, has this sort of, very, reminds me very much in some sense of a character from, from Jane Austen, you know, that has this really good understanding of ethics rooted in Christian realism. So she is the light of reason that penetrates the darkness of the novel. And then there's a dark character called Joseph, who's a Calvinist, who's a hypocrite. So we also see not only is Emily Bronte on the side of the angels, in the sense she's on the side of Christianity against the darkness of self-obsessive narcissism, but she's also on the side of authentic, orthodox Christianity against 
pharisaical, dark, puritanical Calvinism as represented in the novel by this character, Joseph. Mm -hmm. And just, we, we have a couple of minutes left. It's important for folks to understand that reading these great novels is not a distraction from learning about the faith, is it? On the contrary, that basically we are meant to come to truth through uh, the telling and the reading of stories. The, the, the way that God reveals himself to us most deeply uh, is through the telling of stories. First of all, the telling of the story of his own life. Yeah. Um, so the life, death and resurrection of Christ is the greatest story ever told. Right. But each of our own stories, each of our lives is a life story. We understand reality in terms of story. That's how Christ reveals himself to us. And within the story of Christ's life, how the most, some of the most valuable lessons he tells us are stories, fictional narratives. The prodigal son never existed. Right? He's a figment of our Lord's imagination. And yet he's such a powerful figure that every time we hear that story, we don't say the prodigal son is like us. We say we are like the prodigal son. So this fictional character from a fictional narrative is in some sense more real than we are. He's an archetype of which we are types. So Christ understood the power of storytelling and he used the power of storytelling to teach us some of the most profound moral uh, and philosophical truths. And what, you know, we are made in his, his image, our imagination, our imagination is one of the marks of the Imago Dei in us. God, By Imago Dei, you mean what? The image of God, okay. right? So God, amongst other things, is a creator. Mm -hmm. So Chesterton, keeps coming back to Chesterton, says, art is the signature of man. We are, we make by the law by which we're made, as Tolkien said. So Christ is a storyteller, Christ is a creator, Christ is an artist. We are meant to use our own creative gifts, first of all, to give back to the giver of the gift, the fruits of the gift given, true art, but also to bring others to God through that power of creativity. Storytelling is one of those creative gifts. Yeah, and it distinguishes us from the other animals. I like the other animals, but they... Don't tell good stories. <laughs> the book that we're discussing here is called 12 Great Books, by which you can discuss other books. It's called 12 Great Books, Going Deeper into Classical Literature. It's by our guest, Joseph Pierce. It is available at our religious catalog, which is EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 45733. Again, if you want more information on Joseph Pierce, go to his website, jpierce.co. See, or you can also go to saintaustinreview.org. I hadn't trusted my producer to give you the right <laughs> one before. <laughs> Thank you for being with us. Always love having you here. And may the Lord bless you and all of you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we can bring you Joseph and the series that he's doing and all the other programs we have here only because the network is brought to you who keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and cable bill and enable us to pay all of our bills too. Thank you and God bless.